from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and here we talk about serial killers, as well as delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. I come at this from a psychological perspective, so we look at past family members, childhood experiences, and other things that could have contributed to these people evolving into who they've become. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you guys so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts like, share, and subscribe, it might just help our little community grow. And side note, also, thank you guys for being patient with me and letting me have a little bit of time off. It was quite therapeutic after five years, taking sort of a chunk of time off away from death and dismemberment and all of that. So it was quite therapeutic, and I appreciate you guys a lot. So today's podcast was voted for by patrons and just in time for the holidays because it is on Bruce MacArthur, the Santa Claus killer. So let's get started. So Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur was born on October 8th, 1951 in Lindsay, Ontario, and grew up in a very small village just outside of Lindsay. So as we do, let's get into some history for that time. Now, since most of the news right now is about war, how about we keep this to the more positive things from 1951? What do you say? So the very first direct dial telephone call from New Jersey to California specifically happened this year. It took about 18 seconds to connect the call and it was placed using AT&T's direct distance dialing system, which did not use an operator to connect the call, if you remember the lovely ladies that would work the switchboards. This new method utilized a 10-digit phone number, which included the three-digit area code system that had been implemented in the late 40s. Also this year, we see the development of the birth control pill. During the 1930s, there had been some breakthroughs regarding steroids and hormones and finding that it stopped ovulation. So in 1951, a grant was secured from Plant Parenthood to further research hormone contraception. That same year, they were able to successfully synthesize the hormones needed to mass produce birth control pills. Also in 1951, the classic science fiction film The Day the Earth Stood Still debuted in New York. The movie told the story of an alien and his robot who traveled the Earth to deliver an important message to humankind. It was praised by critics and considered to be one of the best movies to be released that year. And for all of you Keanu Reeves stands, he starred in the newish recent-esque remake. 
The classic TV show I Love Lucy debuted on CBS this year. The show starred comedian Lucille Ball as Lucy and Desi Arnaz as Lucy's husband, Ricky. The show revolved around Lucy's comical antics. Now, Desi and Lucille were actually married in real life, and the show was based off a popular radio series that Lucille had previously starred in. I Love Lucy was one of the first scripted television shows to be filmed using three different cameras, and it was unusual that it was filmed in Hollywood using a live audience rather than in New York using a laugh track. The show was a huge success and was nominated for and won many Emmy Awards while it aired. Some other notable people born in 1951 were our beloved Robin Williams, rest his soul, musician Sting, Luke Skywalker, a.k.a. Mark Hamill, musician Phil Collins, actress Jane Seymour and Kurt Russell, and fashion designer Tommy Hilfiger. So... That was the atmosphere that Bruce was born into. His parents were Malcolm MacArthur and then Isley Mary Flynn. Bruce was born when Malcolm was 27 years old and Isley was 22. I love that name, Isley. The couple had already had a daughter, so Bruce had one older sister. Now, the parents were very hardworking farmers and were strictly religious people and equally strict parents. The icing on the religious cake is that Malcolm and Islay apparently also followed different faiths. Islay was said to be Catholic and Malcolm was Presbyterian. Due to this, it was said that the slight religious differences actually sparked a few rather heated debates. But suffice to say, his parents were staunchly religious. Now, it is said that Malcolm in particular was domineering the exact adjective used, actually, and Bruce seemed to always hold a healthy fear of him. Source material didn't mention that his father was abusive in any way, but perhaps had high expectations of his young son, leaning toward demanding. However, both parents were seen as good people who also fostered children with behavioral problems to try to help them. These foster kids would come in and leave the household. There was a fairly high turnover rate, if you will. But Malcolm and Islay certainly gave them a better home than wherever they came from. Now, Bruce himself would later speculate that his father was tough on him and he felt he made him work harder than the other foster kids because Malcolm sensed his son was not the usual, you know, kind of rough and tumble masculine boy. Bruce was much closer to his mother, and when his parents fought, he always sided with his mother, which in turn would anger his father. And once he was old enough to attend school, Bruce was educated in a one-room schoolhouse. He developed quite the reputation for being the teacher's pet. If the other boys in the school misbehaved, Bruce was known to go and inform the teacher, so his classmates called him a tattletale. In his youth, Bruce was also an excellent singer and actually won some singing contests. It was also said that he was very particular about the way he presented himself and was always dressed nicely. As Bruce reached puberty, he became aware that he was gay. In the mid-1960s, and especially in his very rural area, that was still considered completely unacceptable. 
and throw into the mix his very deeply religious parents, and he felt he could never come out as gay. He struggled with his sexuality, and he buried it deep within, as so many people had to. Bruce MacArthur was an intelligent young man, and from his freshman year through his senior year old school, he attended Fenelon Falls. Sources say that there wasn't really anything terribly remarkable about Bruce at this time. He maintained good grades. He got along with his peers. He blended in. During high school, he focused on the arts. He very much enjoyed debating his peers, and in his yearbook, he stated he wanted to, quote, be successful. Kind of generalized, but I think we'll understand why. So it was during this time, being bussed into the high school, that he met Janice Campbell, always mindful that he was to blend in and appear as normal as possible. He seized the opportunity to ask Janice out on a date, and the two of them began dating. Peers would describe him as just, you know, a really nice guy. They were a great couple. Again, nothing really stood out in anyone's minds. And then Bruce graduated high school in 1970. And that was Bruce's childhood. There's not a ton of tea here, but let's get in there and analyze anyway. So Bruce's parents were very well respected in their very rural community. His parents were also foster parents. That's very admirable. But might that have affected him? So starting at the foundation, Children who are sent to foster homes usually are in the state's custody for very good reasons, and those reasons are beyond the child's control. Most often, we see abuse and neglect cases with regards to foster kids. Often, these children come into the foster home displaying behaviors in front of the biological children that a parent might not be prepared for. And the foster kids that landed at the MacArthur's farm were sent there for some old school kind of quote, turning your life around. So let's not underestimate how these kids who might have been subjected to some very serious sexual abuse or physical abuse or some kind of neglect did not have an effect. Or let's let's say that it probably did have a very big effect on Bruce in his youth. And little is really known about the effects of foster children being in the home with biological children. One hopes that all will fall into place and the children will get along, but that isn't always the case. A qualitative research study talked about in an article written for Smith College was conducted and they analyzed the stories of 10 adults who grew up in foster homes as biological children of foster parents from a family systems perspective. Now, that's not a very big study, but common themes and areas for future research were identified. So quoting directly from this study, quote, Participants identified and described diverse experiences in which both positive aspects as well as individual and family struggles. Participants described exposure to foster siblings' behaviors and knowledge about their lives. Due to this exposure, participants describe areas of stress as well as changes in perspective. In many cases, this led to an increase in family closeness, feelings of gratitude, and the development of positive personal attributes. Participants also identified an awareness of parental stress in the areas of finances, discipline, and relationships with foster children. 
Effects of foster children entering and exiting the home in regards to adjustment and closeness of relationships were also discussed. Findings indicated a need for further research and attention to the experiences of foster family members. End quote. So during this study, it became pretty obvious that there really isn't much in the way of information as to how growing up with the biological child of foster parents is and how that affects them throughout their childhood. But what little information is out there shows a somewhat eye-opening situation in which the biological children do feel a varying sense of loss. There was the loss of parental attention, though for Bruce, this might have been a positive experience, you know, considering his dad. In this study, 47% of biological children reported they did not like the changes that fostering brought about. They felt that their parents just didn't have enough time or attention for them. These children also had a sense of the financial strain on the family as well. The study also showed that separation anxiety and superego conflicts were present for the foster parents' biological children. Maternal attunement to separation anxiety and superego conflicts was found to be imperfect in all cases. The study found that the younger children had more of a fear of abandonment, while the older children, separation anxiety manifested as guilt. But the few studies that have been conducted show the experience of fostering to the biological children to lean more positive. But again, I want to reiterate that being foster parents and having foster children is a very, very important thing. Children from whatever situation need to understand that there are people that will love and care for them. Absolutely. But we don't know how severe the situation was with these children that were around Bruce. And, and there's a part of me that does kind of feel that maybe he witnessed some things or heard stories about things that might have affected his later behavior. And then moving on to the fact that we know that Bruce realized he was gay during the mid-1960s. Now, for most people during the 60s, it was a time of sexual awakening. But for homosexuals, it was still very much the dark ages. One must understand just how repressive the atmosphere was around homosexuality back then. Being caught in any homosexual act would get you arrested and charged with something like gross indecency. They didn't really want to put a label on it. Most people couldn't even bring themselves to discuss it head on. People have been searching for biological explanations for sexual desires for centuries, primarily as a way to try and find a, quote, cure for, quote, perverted desires. In the most horrible of examples, the Nazi regime in Germany invested significant resources in attempts to find the reasons for homosexuality in an attempt to cure it. Now, let's get into those fascinating twin studies. Oh, God, I love the twin studies. Evidence from independent research groups who studied twins shows that genetic factors explain about 25 to 30 percent of the differences between people and sexual orientation, meaning heterosexual, gay, lesbian, bisexual, pan, what have you. Twin studies are the first look into the genetics of a trait and tell us that there are such things as genes for sexual orientation. 
Three gene findings studies showed that gay brothers share genetic markers on the X chromosome. The most recent study also found shared markers on chromosome 8. Now, the the uh, X chromosome, that is from the mother. That is, that is the uh, genetic marker from the mother if it's a boy. Can be X from the father if it's a girl. But genes are far from the whole story. Sex hormones in prenatal life play a role. For example, girls born with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, or CAH, which results in naturally increased levels of male sex hormones, show relatively high rates of same-sex attractions as adults. And without getting into another hour's worth of rant, there is very much a scientific component to this. It's not just personal choice, but I digress. Bruce was being raised by very staunchly religious parents, and interestingly, they were completely different denominations. Again, father was a Protestant, and Islay was Catholic, and both devoutly so, which caused arguments in the home. We've discussed parents fighting in front of the children and how that affects them at nauseum, really. But then you add the very healthy fear of his father and feeling as though his parents in general would never accept him if he came out as gay. His community was incredibly small, and he knew he would have been shamed and shunned, brought shame unto his family, and so on and so on, right? So let's keep in mind what might have happened had he come out and the, quote, county boys cornered him. And so what did he do? How did Bruce cope with this, right? So he shoved it all down. He kept quiet. But his resentment for not being able to really be himself would have been very real, With the limited childhood information I could find about Bruce, I still didn't find any instances where he was abused or neglected in any way, though. I'm sure he was spanked for disciplinary infractions, like most all kids were back then, but there was no mention of anything extreme or unacceptable. Not that, I mean, I think we're kind of outgrowing the spanking thing to begin with, but let's go with the times, right? I didn't find any incidents where Bruce was sexually harmed as a child, nothing like that. But we cannot take off the table the fact that he was around foster children and we don't know what they may have exposed him to. So I'd like to leave at least a pin in that part, okay? So let's get back into the story. Once Bruce and his girlfriend Janice graduated high school in 1970, Bruce continued his education and earned a degree in business. He and Janice had moved away from their tiny hometown and got married when they were 23. The couple settled down in Toronto and Bruce became an assistant buyer for the Eaton's department store. By now, as I said, it was the 1970s and while the gay lifestyle was no longer criminal, the violence against the gay community was still very much present. Not far from the department store Bruce worked at was an up-and-coming village where homosexuals were beginning to create a community for themselves. Around this time, Bruce's father was diagnosed with a brain tumor and had to be sent to a nursing home for care. A woman who was a caregiver of his father's later stated that Bruce came to visit his father pretty often and she thought he was indeed a nice young man. And while his father was in this nursing home, Bruce discovered that his mother had begun seeing another man pretty quickly after, and this angered him as it made him believe his mother might have been fostering a relationship with this man before his father's illness. 
but then his mother was actually diagnosed with cancer and died in 1978. The next year, Bruce and Janice moved to a suburb of Toronto and after their daughter Melanie was born. Then Bruce's father died in 1981, the same year he and his wife had their son, Todd. And during all of this, folks, he's becoming an adult, right? Witnessing the mortality of his parents, becoming a father of two children, and being outwardly content in his marriage and overall life. Obviously, his desire to be with men never diminished. So to keep himself busy and occupied, he became very active in church. Because you see, church was very familiar, good, bad, or ugly. It felt like home. Growing up, religion and going to church had been all he had known, and perhaps he was really struggling with his sexuality, and like so very many other people, maybe he felt that if he went to church and participated and prayed just hard enough, he could cure, quote-unquote cure, his desires. Of course, we know that doesn't work because that's not how biology works, but again, I digress. Financially, the family were doing pretty well, and in 1986, they purchased a roomy brick home in the suburbs. The children were thriving, everything seemed to be good in now 35-year-old Bruce's life. Then he decided to become a traveling salesman, selling socks for the company McGregor to Toronto department stores, and predictably, he was coming to the realization that he was just not happy in his heterosexual life, though I think he did love his wife, maybe not in love. He felt stuck that, you know, he really had no other options. But for the most part, throughout the 80s and early 90s, this was his life. He raised his children and even became a grandfather. And then finally, in the early 90s, Bruce saw that he was a middle-aged Man, this is often a turning point for many people. He'd lived his life honestly. He'd raised his children, and as far as I could find, he was decent, at least to his wife. But the clock was ticking, and eventually he gave in and started sleeping with men. Now imagine how he must have felt. I mean, not to get personal here, but I couldn't spend my life forcing myself to have a sexual relationship with a woman. Now, I can look at women and find them absolutely beautiful, but there is zero attraction. So I can't imagine forcing yourself to be with someone you're not even attracted to. That would be horrible. So Bruce did eventually come out to his wife, but, you know, she actually took the news quite well. She even allowed him to continue living in the home, and I love that. My instincts tell me that she most likely had an idea that he was gay anyway, but their children did not take the news nearly as well. Bruce's son, Todd, actually began then making random, obscene phone calls to random women. In fact, he became obsessed with this act, which resulted in many legal actions against him, to which his parents tried to pay for to make it all go away. But Todd kept it up, found himself on probation, and then getting into trouble later for the same thing, breach of probation, making indecent telecommunications, and criminal harassment. Around this time, Bruce also lost his salesman job, thus forcing him and his wife to have to take out a second mortgage on their home in 97, then ultimately having to file for bankruptcy in 99. And then finally, he moved out of the family home and got an apartment in Toronto. 
To make extra money during the holidays, he would dress as Santa Claus and take pictures with children in the local malls. After getting his apartment in Toronto, he started a relationship with another man that actually lasted for two years, but they eventually split. His divorce became finalized and he began to feel depressed. He decided to see a psychiatrist who put him on the antidepressant Prozac. That's what I take. However, he and his now ex-wife remained close and stood by each other during their son, Todd's, legal troubles. Even the judge on Todd's case remarked about what good parents he had. Now, there is some debate as to when Bruce's mind began to turn violent. But make no mistake, on Halloween in 2001, the now 50-year-old attacked a man with a metal pipe. He had met the man in an online chat room. The man was a prostitute and invited Bruce to his apartment to see his costume. Bruce brought a metal pipe with him and used it to beat the other man in the back of the head as well as on his body. Bruce then left him there to die. The man regained consciousness and called for help. He had to have extensive stitches in his head and one of his hands, and he also required physical therapy. The man pressed charges and Bruce was ultimately arrested, though he stated he had no memory of the attack and was sentenced to house arrest. He had to submit his DNA to be added into Canada's database. He was told he could not be near male prostitutes. He could also not own a gun for 10 years and had to see a therapist for anger management. So about this time, Bruce had also begun a landscaping business. It's very much giving um, John Wayne Gacy, don't you think? One really wouldn't describe Bruce as particularly talented, but his clientele was made up of mostly rich, elderly women who found him quite charming. Through recommendations from these women, he did build up a respectable number of clients. He recruited his son Todd to work with him, And as a bit of a side story, really, so Todd, in legal trouble, like we said, was told he had to move in with his father. So kind of a side story. A friend of Todd's later stated that when he visited Todd at Bruce's place, he noticed that a wall in the bathroom had been decorated with kind of East Indian or Middle Eastern appearing men with full on erections in every photo. Todd said that his father was at least acquaintances with all of those men, but still, I'm sure Todd having to sit and look at those every day had to take a toll on his mental health as well, well, you know? But during this time, Bruce was very active on gay dating sites with verified profiles on, and I had not really heard of many of these, Recon, Silver Daddies, Man Jam, Grindr, Bear 411, Bear Forest, Scruff, Daddy Hunt, and Squirt. I mean, you gotta love those names, right? My God. But he promoted himself as being interested in BDSM and stated that he wanted submissive men. He was described as being quite rough with his lovers and was known to have an explosive temper. It also appeared that Bruce's favorite type of lover was usually of East Indian or Middle Eastern descent, or at least that look. You get what I'm saying. Only it was becoming quite concerning in the close gay community when it was noticed that men were beginning to disappear. 
Most all of them immigrants or refugees from East or South Asia and the Middle East living in Toronto. Some of the missing men were married with children, but having secret affairs with men. Bruce MacArthur was one of many suspects in the beginning, but at first he was ruled out. During this time in 2011, remember he was born in 51, Bruce joined Facebook and his profile was just loaded with pictures of him having a great time. Some of his photos he posted were of themed parties, vacations, and nights out with men who appeared to be of the same descent as the missing gay men from that area. Huge red flag, one would think. Former lovers and survivors described Bruce as saying he wanted sexual partners who were willing to go past their comfort zone to be able to take, quote, light torture to their very limit. What they said he actually did to them was far, far worse. In 2017, the police created Task Force Project PRISM and began to investigate the missing men, and it didn't take long for Bruce MacArthur to be on their radar. They found him on various gay dating sites, and one photo was found of him with one of the missing men. Also, one of the missing men had a calendar in his apartment where he had written the name Bruce on the day he disappeared. Authorities watched some security footage outside of the man's apartment and saw that a red Dodge Caravan had pulled up to pick him up. The authorities then researched the make and model of the van and cross-referenced with any owners by the name of Bruce and boom. Pretty simple. Detectives then got information from Google, from Bruce's cell phone companies, because he had more than one, his financial information from two different banks, and began to track where his phone pinged. You know, all of the usual things to work out a timeline. They also searched for his recently sold landscaping van and recovered it from a scrapyard. They took it in for forensics, and after analysis, inside the van was blood evidence that the police collected and it was identified as belonging to one of the missing men. The authorities were able to enter his apartment while he was gone, and they cloned one of his hard drives. They actually collected enough evidence to put Bruce on 24-hour surveillance. It was during one of those surveillance times when they saw a younger man enter his apartment, and they decided it was time to act, because they were scared for his life. And when they gained entry, they found the young man bound and tied to the bed, scared shitless, but not harmed. They arrested Bruce right then and there and took him in. On one of his computers, they were able to find grisly photos of his suspected victims kept as trophies. Very Jeffrey Dahmer. After killing several of his victims, serial killer Bruce MacArthur took gruesome photos of their naked bodies posed with such items as fur coats or he'd place cigars between their lips. Some of them were alive in the photos and others after they had been murdered. The murder weapon was a metal bar with a rope attached and was seen around the necks of some of the victims. Bruce repeatedly killed his victims with ligature strangulation. The murder weapon was located and seized. Police also discovered a duffel bag in his apartment that contained duct tape, a surgical glove, rope, 
zip ties, a black bungee cord, and syringes. So he had his kill kit. They obtained search warrants for various properties he was connected with, most from his landscaping business, of course, and on one property, large planter boxes were discovered. Now, keep in mind that this was all happening in the middle of winter in Canada. The planter boxes were frozen completely to the ground and they had to be thawed in order to be able to be moved. Inside the boxes, they found the dismembered bodies of several victims. Overall, 30 properties had to be searched as cadaver dogs indicated many human remains sites. Quickly, they found evidence of Bruce digging up remains that he had initially buried in the flower boxes and moved them to other boxes. The investigation at that time was the largest in Toronto's history, possibly Canada's as a whole. They were looking into Bruce being a possible serial killer for decades, right? Potentially even killing back when he was a traveling salesman. The investigators took more than 1,800 items from Bruce's apartment to test or use as evidence, and he was charged with eight murders. Now, most of his victims were immigrants or refugees who were more kind of off the radar. And there has been a ban ordered on the court proceedings at that time so that no information was leaked to the media. But Bruce ultimately pleaded guilty to all of the murder charges. The Crown asked for a 50-year sentence, citing, quote, the enormity of MacArthur's crimes, his lack of remorse as MacArthur declined to address the court, the betrayals upon his victims, the effect of his crimes on the community, and how he had been a danger up to his arrest. Now, the defense said that such a sentence would be unduly harsh given Bruce's age, which was 60 years old at that moment, to be precise, and noted he had waived a preliminary hearing and pleaded guilty, which benefited all involved in the proceedings. On February 8th, Justice McMahon sentenced Bruce to life imprisonment with no parole eligibility for 25 years. He described the crimes as pure evil and stated that Bruce showed, quote, no evidence of remorse and would have continued killing had he not been apprehended. Bruce can apply for parole when he is 91 years old, but it was said that that would be highly unlikely that he would ever actually be granted parole. The Toronto Sun also noted that Bruce is overweight with type 2 diabetes, and it is unlikely that he will even live that long. So, Bruce was a sexual sadist. As far as we know, at least for now, as this case is still kind of ongoing as they check for other missing persons to see if Bruce might be connected to them, they believe he began killing in 2010. Again, that's tentative. It could have been before that. Now, I did an episode in May of 2022 of True Crime Science on sexual sadism. So if you want to go back and listen to that one, go for it. Very educational. But kind of to sum up. Sexual sadism is the infliction of physical or psychological suffering in the form of humiliation, terror, and so on, on another person to stimulate sexual excitement and orgasm. Sexual sadism disorder is sexual sadism that causes clinically significant distress or functional impairment or is acted on with a non-consenting person. 
People with sexual sadism disorder have either acted on the intense urges or have debilitating or distressing fantasies with sexually sadistic themes that they have not acted upon. The condition must also have been present for at least six months, if not more. Most sexual sadists have persistent fantasies in which sexual excitement results from suffering inflicted on the partner, consenting or not. When practiced with non-consenting partners, sexual sadism constitutes criminal activity and is likely to continue until the sadist is apprehended. Sexual sadism is particularly dangerous when associated with antisocial personality disorder. Now, I don't know if Bruce was technically diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, so I'm not going to throw that label on him, but it is at least interesting to note that it is dangerous, sexual sadism is, when it is paired with antisocial. Okay, so this combination of disorders may result in criminal sadism involving kidnapping or abduction of unwilling parties who may be harmed or killed. Individuals with both conditions are considered particularly resistant to psychiatric treatment, and we know this. Such individuals, when apprehended and convicted, are sometimes civilly committed as sexually violent predators for decades due to the lack of effective treatments. So what do you think was going on in this case? Of course, again, we have limited information regarding his childhood, and while no specific causes have been determined for sexual sadism disorder, there are several theories. These include escapism or a feeling of power for someone who normally feels powerless in their day-to-day life. I think that applies to Bruce. Release of suppressed sexual fantasies, which I think also goes with Bruce, and progressive acting out of sadistic sexual fantasies over time. And I do think that um, that his sexual violence did escalate over time, or that's generally how it goes. So do you guys think that perhaps there's some unreported things going on from his childhood that might have flipped that switch into violence? Do you think it's purely because he felt so what do you say, just having that feeling of powerlessness, you know, escapism, that he feels powerless in his day-to-day life. I mean, what do you guys think? What do you think drove him over the edge like that? It is a very disturbing case indeed. And I actually was contacted by someone who told me that they were one of the survivors of Bruce MacArthur, but the way that he sort of left me this whole, it was just kind of creepy. And so I did not reach out to talk to him. It made me a little uncomfortable. But outside of that, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment on here, especially on Spotify, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can come join the Facebook fan page that was created by one of my very beloved listeners. Um, I'm pretty active over there. We do discuss cases, but we also share a lot of dark humor memes and things. So it's kind of fun over there. It's a fun little group. As always, thank you so much for listening, guys, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I appreciate it so, so much. Thanks for letting me have that bit of time off. It was very therapeutic. I love you guys so much. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was...
was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 